Hello, listeners, and welcome to the Content Clearinghouse. I'm Josh Evans. And I'm bleary-eyed Brett Chisholm. And on today's episode, I discuss the fascinating tale of a man whose brain was scanned at the moment of death. And this got Brett and I off on a tangent sharing our own thoughts on death, the afterlife, everything. And of course, we decided to form a cult in the hopes of achieving the ultimate in spiritual freedom, what all religions hope to achieve, tax-exempt status. After that, Brett discusses a piece of content that melts the little Rancor man in my heart. The movie he's bringing to this episode is approximately 96% incest-free, but it still has a little bit of incest for those of you that are into that sort of thing. If you haven't figured it out through context clues, which how could you? We've only given you two clues and they barely make any sense. It's The Empire Strikes Back. Movies, shows, and video games. Podcast books and their acclaims. Let their favorite content become yours. It's The Content Clearing House. Content Clearing House. And it starts right now. Brett. Josh. (laughs) (laughs) How are you? (laughs) I'm pretty good, but can we talk about Jeremy Renner? For a second. <laughs> okay, if we must. Uh, did you hear about what happened to him at Lake Tahoe? Yeah, of course. Yeah? Crushed to death. Yeah, getting run like, over. Actually, not crushed yeah. to death. He survived. Um, I, so I, <laughs> yeah, he's alive. <laughs> he's alive. Yes. So I, went, I, I actually dug into the story a little bit more. and Because the news says it was a snow plow. But it was actually a piston bully snow cat. And you remember when I was driving snowcats uh, for Vale, doing some winter grooming on the ski slopes? I do, yeah. So those things are like small tanks, man. And I don't think Jeremy Renner's was as big as the one I was driving for Vale, but apparently his weighs 14,000 pounds. He had 30 broken bones and a collapsed lung. But the reason I bring it up, I saw an interview... It was like his first interview since being put back together. He looks great. He's back in one piece. But the best part is right before he was crushed, he yelled, not today, motherfucker. (laughs) (laughs) Hawkeye's really the best Avenger. I really wanted to tell you about that. Oh, man. I mean, that is a great thing to yell, but let's not go crazy. He's not the best Avenger. That's insanity. (laughs) No, he is because... If uh, there's a Reddit post, statistically, when Hawkeye is not in an Avenger battle, they lose every time. When they're like 0 for 4. When Hawkeye's in the Avengers, they win every time, 7 for 0. Undefeated. This is mistaking causation and correlation, Brett. (laughs) Uh, I think that they're just... Maybe they're just more inspired when he's around because they're like, look, this human is doing it. We can all fight harder. <laughs> that makes a lot more sense. I love when yeah, he, totally. I love when the character even calls out like, none of this makes sense. I'm a guy with a bow and arrow fighting yeah. like, robots. Like no, nothing makes sense. So get out there and fight. I did hate that line where he was like, I heard you took up golf. Yeah. Played 18. Shot 18. <laughs> Shut up, Hawkeye. Get the fuck out of here. <laughs> oh, my God. Those are some awesome final words, though. I mean, he knew they weren't going to be his final words, clearly. It was in the message, but <laughs> yeah, it's a pretty awesome thing to scream before you're run over by a tank. So awesome. Not today, motherfucker. Anyway, oh, how you doing? Man. 
I'm good. Speaking of today, what is it? Tomorrow for you? Or it is, is it today Sunday. for me? Are you yeah, still on you're, Saturday? You're, you're in the future right now. Yeah, Brett's on the other side of the planet. Where are you right now? You're always stuck in the past. I'm in Brussels, Belgium. Uh, I'm stuck Tell us a- what happens <laughs> in America on Sunday. Now, go. I don't think it works that way. The only thing <laughs> that I do have a head uh, head start on is Wordle. I play a little Wordle. Oh, so I cheating. always I always got the head start on the next word that everybody's stuck in the uh, other side of the planet. But yeah, I'm all about what that. What time uh, is it there? It's six twenty four a.m. That explains why you look so bleary eyed. <laughs> it doesn't you actually. Should definitely. I, I looked bleary eyed. Use some of that too. morning delirium and say some funny stuff. <laughs> I do tend to get loopy sometimes when I'm on the road right before I go to sleep. You did see that chocolate uh, that I showed you, right? With the, uh, what is the statue called? The peeing boy or the pissing boy? Piss boy. Piss boy. I'm not even there and I'm taking a while to guess. (laughs) There's a very famous uh, statue here. Fountain. Oh, it's uh, the mannequin piss. Ugh. Gross. It's one of the most representative and loved symbols of Brussels. So there you go. Yeah. So it's a little boy peeing. Uh, yeah. Exactly. Couldn't do that in America. Yeah. <laughs> so what are you up to? <laughs> Looks like you're at uh, home. I w- yeah. Yeah. It's late here. It's 10 o'clock. I think it's the latest I've ever recorded. But uh, we, uh, I'm going to be up anyway. So let's do this. I went uh, roller skating today for the first time in probably 20 years. Uh, roller my skating? My six-year-old. Yeah, she, uh, she she had a birthday party, and it was a roller rink. And I went, and I was like, I think your old man might still be able to do this. And uh, I only fell down twice. Wow. One of the times I fell down, though, it was pretty awesome. I knew I was going to fall. And so I like as I was falling, I laid down, and I was carrying some speed. So I just laid down on my side and probably slid like 20 feet. It was pretty awesome. Nice smooth transition to ground level. Wow. Uh, how do you compare <laughs> it to falling on your one wheel? Oh, dude. I've only had one awful crash, but after I crashed going 17 miles an hour, I totally changed the gear on the one wheel to hopefully prevent that from ever happening. I bought the little uh, the fangs, the little wheels yeah. that go on the front and put yeah. them on there specifically for that. But now I know a bunch of tricks where you can like drop the fangs onto the ground and ride on them. Or I'll find like a, a patch of sand and I'll go backwards and then I'll drop the fangs to the ground and lift my back foot off. I can do this burnout now on the one wheel in the sand where only one foot is on it. It's spraying sand behind it and then <laughs> put the foot back down and right away. It's pretty That's awesome. That's really awesome. Yeah, basically that, intentional nosedives. Totally. That, that crash changed what I can do on a one wheel now because you, I never would have tried that without fangs. And now I have fangs, the, the little nose wheels. I have them on the nose and the tail. So I can do that burnout going both directions. And I can, if I do like a revert, if I come out facing backwards and I do, you know, drop the, the tail into the ground, it'll still keep riding away. So now mine's actually a five wheel, <laughs> five wheels on it. <laughs> the old More five. than a car would have. <laughs> 
<laughs> the old five wheel. I remember when you had yeah. I remember when you had that crash. I think anybody that I like meet that also rides one wheels, I tell them about that because I think the best part of the store was that you just got the big bag of chips at the store. Yeah, airbag. That was your yeah your backpack airbag. Like that's a, it. Totally was. Yeah. You should always ride Ruined my bag of chips, though. <laughs> but it was worth the sacrifice. Yeah, better that than All your right. spine. Exactly. You ready to do this off top, buddy? Yeah. I can't wait. All right. So, do you know that due to a strange and unlikely series of events, we have a one-off example of a brain scan right at the moment of a human's death? What? Have you ever heard about this? No, I just I just saw an article where two people had sex in an MRI, though. Ooh. Oh wait. Okay, you go. <laughs> you do the off top and the and the content piece tonight. <laughs> I swear I swear they wanted to see how bodies fit together to see if the old like Leonardo da Vinci textbook drawings and in, in uh like medical journals was correct. Oh. Yeah. I Mine's not that hot. <laughs> but uh So this is actually like an old story. It comes from a February 2022 story in Smithsonian Magazine, uh, but I'd never heard about this until just recently. But an 87-year-old Canadian man who's not named, obviously, because he dies in the story, uh, but he was an epilepsy patient and he was having an encephalophalogram, you know, EEG. I think that's what it's called. Okay. Uh, he was having an EEG scan done, and this is a scan that records brain waves when he unexpectedly had a heart attack while he was on the table. And this was highly unfortunate, but it did afford the doctors this rare glimpse into the mind of a dying person. Like this has never happened before because obviously you can't plan this type of thing. Like no one is going to be in an EEG machine if the doctors thought that there was a risk of death. So he was in the machine to see what happens during one of his epileptic seizures, but the doctors got so much more than they were expecting. So they recorded 900 seconds of data during the scan, and the doc doctors reported that for 30 seconds before and then for several seconds after the man's heart stopped, the scans showed increases in the area brain associated with memory recall, meditation, and dreaming. That's and so wild. I know. Isn't that crazy? Super crazy. Like, the, uh, the this machine, it recorded high frequency gamma brain waves which are the specific type of brain waves associated with memory recall so in a quote from neurosurgeon uh he is a neurosurgeon ajmal zimmer who he studied the case i think he may have been part of uh the the initial study with this guy too uh he said though generating oscillations involved in memory retrieval the brain may be playing a last recall of important life events just before we die similar to the ones reported in near-death experiences. And surprisingly, after the heart stops pumping blood into the brain, these oscillations keep going. Wow. And this is, man, this, I've been thinking about this so much lately. Um, I don't know about you, but I, I think about this type of thing a lot. And, you know, how many people have reported near-death experiences and how like, universal that seems. And you can't really draw any conclusions necessarily from this because the sample size is so small. But neurosurgeons, uh, they, they caution against taking this as fact, like assuming that all human experience is the same. But it is consistent with all of these 
anecdotal descriptions of near-death experiences. And uh, on the other hand, this man, he was in this machine to study epilepsy, which is known to alter gamma brainwaves. So it's unknown if his experience was affected by his epileptic condition or if this is something that is, you know, universal to humans. Man, that is super crazy. Yeah, I think about this kind of stuff all the time. Memento Mori. Yeah. Uh, you know, for... So there, there was another study uh, in 2013 involving lab rats that researched similar brain patterns at the moment of death. And uh, that the correlation between these two things has led scientists to speculate that memory recall at the time of death may be something that gets universal in mammals. And I think for, you know, something that's such a universal experience such as death, it's crazy how little we actually know about what happens, which is probably why humanity, the only animal that we know of that can conceptualize its own mortality, spends so much time thinking about it. Hmm. But what do you, what would the, do you think the evolutionary advantage of memories flashing before your eyes at the time of death would be? Mm, that's a really level heavy for 6 a.m. <laughs> that's a really interesting question. Good, good thing I had that the shot of espresso. <laughs> <laughs> Man, I mean, I have my own uh, woo-woo theories about death, though. Let's hear it, bro. Well, I just think that there is uh, more to this ma- more to this material existence than what we can measure. And I think that there's some sort of transition from, you know, occupying this meat suit into converting some sort of, uh, you know, like something gets converted and some aspect of our being, existence, or consciousness remains somehow. I heard some scientists scanned a couple of meat suits that were interfacing <laughs> the crotchal region. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, they wanted to figure out how those meat suits fit together. Man, <laughs> so what do you think? I mean, yeah, do you, what do you think it is? Do you think that there is some sort of physical thing that's happening? Or do you think it's like random firing of neurons? I I mean, I, I really don't know. I, I don't think we take a whole lot of what we would consider to be our self into the next plane of existence. But um, because I'm kind of one of the, I'm on the, uh, I'm kind of on the train of thought, which is I always have a difficult time explaining my spiritual beliefs because they're very like personal to me and they are, they've mm-hmm. been like developed over um, like many, many years of thinking about this and other experiences that I've had. And so my kind of like overarching theory is there is a collective consciousness that comes before material existence and that our brains are sort of tuning into that consciousness which exists before the brain exists and so it's like a it's like a radio wave that we can tune into temporarily and so we're all kind of separated in this material existence but we came from one and we go to one and whether you That's call that whether you call that like a you know god or uh, you know, the terminology doesn't really matter. Uh, and I, it's not any sort of religious uh, connotation that you might think of. That's the problem. Those words are so loaded with all sorts of cultural baggage. But um, but I don't know. I just, I, the fact that like the other, you know, one of the big questions that scientists 
just like can't cannot answer is the where consciousness originates from like that is so interesting to me and then when i watch uh there's like a really good netflix documentary which i've rewatched twice i think it's called after death or something like that it's actually a leslie keen she wrote the ufo book that i talked about mm. on the show yeah she like produces it but she has got a there's a bunch of different episodes of after death i think it's called after death but uh one of them is about um reincarnation and this this like guy that made it his life's work to look seriously at reincarnation um stories and like dude there is some crazy credible shit out there about like these kids that are having these memories of getting like shot down over some islands yeah, fighter pilots yeah shit yeah. like that like i don't know and like other cultures have sort of embraced these stories and said like you know like they're like it's much more common globally to have a, a like a religious or spiritual belief system that incorporates some sort of like reincarnation um like we we tend to you know the sort of the the christian roots of the U, 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 united states they kind of shy away from talk of reincarnation but you know you look at other cultures and they're all about it <laughs> and i i'm kind of on that train like i don't know how it looks i don't know what it means but i just i do think that we have something like I, I'm not a nihilist. I don't think we just turn into like dirt and and totally cease to exist. Worm food. Worm food. Well, yeah, the bot the meat yeah. suit becomes worm food. I'm okay with that. Yeah, I'm scientists okay got to scan something. <laughs> have I? Uh, I I think it's interesting that we can't really have this discussion without it uh, going in a religious direction. I think I feel like organized religion has a. Uh, pretty good foothold when it comes to the afterlife but have you have i ever explained to you my concept of the oversoul yes yeah but i i want to hear it again this is something that i think has influenced my own beliefs because you were talking about this for probably 15 years as long as we've known about the spy skulking at scavenger colorado <laughs> that's an inside joke maybe we'll have to post a picture on the instagram um so uh actually i came up with this idea probably 20 years ago or maybe even longer when I was uh, working with one of my friends to write a comic book. And so I was just doing a lot of conceptual work for like background story. And part of it was about, uh, was about death and the afterlife. And uh, so I, I came up with this idea and then the more I started thinking about it and the more I started to refine the idea just in my own mind, I was like, Oh my God, I'm not sure, but I think I might actually believe this. And uh, it's not religious in any way, but it does have a little bit of a tie to a uh, non-interventionist creationism. And uh, so my concept was that we are not these physical beings, kind of like what you're saying. Uh, this is more of like a ride that we're on. And our true self is actually this non-physical, maybe like sentient energy, something. I don't know. I don't know exactly how that part of it works. But I believe that the purpose of the universe is for these non-physical beings to incarnate into the physical realm because there are experiences that can only be gained through mortality and through living and through having a concept of death because I think that that really... I feel like 
that concept of death is one of the, the things that adds, like we would call it humanity, to our behavior. Because once you're sentient and you understand about your own mortality, then with some people, that would tamper their actions you know, and control what they do in a way that is better for everyone around them. You know, some people are total psychos, but uh, I feel like the purpose of that is for us to gain this information and this knowledge through uh, being mortal. And then when we die, we have the option to, to basically reincarnate into any creature anywhere across the universe, any number of innumerable planets and galaxies, because every bit of that time is time that we're gaining experience about what this huge this grand experiment of the universe is and i feel like this goes on and on until the heat death of the universe in which point everything reverts back to like a non-physical existence and in that existence whatever we are it, the currency is experience and the more experienced you are and the more varied your existences have been the bigger your knowledge base is and the more experience you have to draw on for whatever comes next and I had that idea for this comic book but then there are several things that have happened throughout my life that like made me feel like that was more and more true like specifically with flying skydiving flying in the wind tunnel it was never something that I even realized was an option for me but like as a kid I remember I used to take G.I. Joe toys and I'd put them into like tracking positions and fly them across the house. And then when I started That's skydiving, awesome. I'm like, these are the exact same positions they're teaching me that I was doing as a kid. Like this stuff just seemed to make sense to me, even though I didn't even know that a human could fly. And then that type of activity just like grabbed me so immediately to the point where I felt like it was a thing that had been missing from my life, which would totally make sense if I had ever existed as a bird or flying creature and, you know, part of that subconsciously carried over. And then another time when I felt like this was reinforced was when I was team training with Mike Silva uh, for skydiving, tunnel flying. Like, there were moments when I felt like I almost had like a hive mind with him. When we are doing like coordinated uh, maneuvers and routines and things, like I felt like I could see what he was going to do and predict it before – it was even like established that we were going to do something and I never felt that way with another human being. And I'm just like, man, this is, this would be, is what it would be like to exist as an ant or a bee or something. And then it feels like just a little tiny bit of that former existence is, you know, slipping through the cracks. And I'm not sure if I, I want to think that I totally believe this, but it's hard to say if it's like, just a cool idea that I had that I'm that I think is awesome and wish was true or if I really have like faith or belief that this is real and I think like the older I get the more I slip towards that you know like believing and hoping this is what the universe is and I've thought about the creation of the universe as well it can always it always annoy me in religion uh, among other things most things that they would say uh, but this thing where they're like, oh, you know, this was God's will or like the other side of that coin is like, how could God let this happen? And I always thought like if a human being had created the universe and we were running this experiment, we would make a point to not intervene 
because if we intervene, then we're not getting accurate results of what's happening when you let all these physical processes of the universe run and then life springs up and consciousness appears. And if we intervene in wars and natural disasters, then we're not getting accurate results. And so that's where I started thinking about with this oversoul idea, there may be some sort of creator, but I think of it as like non-interventionist uh, interventionist creationism where the experiment is created and you let it run. And this is a place where the only, the only like touch from the outside world is us, these non-physical beings that are reincarnating over and over and over and into it. But the creator is just like, you have whatever it is, 26 billion years. It's going to do whatever it's going to do. And then at the end of that, whatever comes next. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, I don't think our, our spiritual belief systems are really that different. Like, I think like the big difference that I see between them is I see the consciousness is existing in this sort of like void first. And like, if you were just this omnipotent collective conscious with godlike powers of creation, like, I think what you would do is you would separate yourself to make like, kind of like you're saying, like, create experience, create variety. And so I feel like there is some sort of creation aspect at the beginning. And then the consciousness is trying to like almost trick itself out of just existing alone in a void by creating the illusion of separation. But I think mm -hmm. that separation is just an illusion. That is what we're experiencing right now. And we sort of start as one thing. Like I always get the sense whenever I've had experiences in the past of like a complete ego death and like, you know, um, just like no sense of self, like all of that, it, it does feel like, you know, this is more of an illusion that veil gets lifted. And I get the sense that like everything is one, everything is connected. And like, if you think about it, even just from a scientific standpoint, like it is like we all evolved from, you know, a single celled organism. And before that, like, all things, all matter in the universe came from a single point, the Big Bang, you know? So there, there is like, I don't just think I'm like picking these ideas out of nowhere, like willy nilly, or maybe I am just trying to like fit, you know, I'm trying to find a belief system that like fits with my uh, scientific sensibilities. Like there's a pot, you know, I, who knows? Like I, but I do, I, it's not like I've, I've just arbitrarily chosen this idea as something I want to put some like faith in, but it, I could be totally wrong. It's just what I like to believe. Yeah, that's really interesting. Nice, uh, nice job covering your ass at the end there. You know what we should do is we should start our own religion and we get tax exempt status. <laughs> I think a few people have tried that and it doesn't work. Like what? at what point does a cult become a religion? Like there is a tipping point and all of a sudden you can be, you know, like we, we've seen it at various stages of um, our history. You know, like more recent religions, you're like, yeah, Scientology, the Church of Latter-day Saints. Like, it wasn't that long ago when that was just a weird cult. And if you go further back in time, you know, you can say that about any, literally any religion. You know, there's always like some person oh, yeah, with cults. some ideas, with some followers, and then the idea virus is planted and it starts to spread. Um, so that's why I like to, like, I like to make mine just real personal, real individual <laughs> it's and just for me don't forget that tax exempt status 
I would like that. I just, as I told you before we started recording, I had a big tax bill, buddy, and it did not feel good. <laughs> oh, no. Well, this is perfect timing then, Brett. All right, you guys all here to hear. We're starting our own religion. Yeah. That sounds great, and buddy. the first tenet of this religion is for you to tell me what's on your content circuit. <laughs> Well, as you know, I'm currently at work, so my content circuit is fully loaded. I'm cruising right through. Uh, I haven't been doing much reading, to be honest with you. I binged season one of a podcast called Cold, speaking of Mormons. Uh, it's about the disappearance of Susan Powell. I don't know if you've heard of this story. Okay, it was, no. happened several years ago. Um, but the it was about the investigation of Susan Powell's husband, Josh Powell. Spoiler alert. It does not end well. He sounds well. like trouble. He's a bit oh. of a family annihilator. Total piece of shit. It's... First name. He'll get you. <laughs> um, let's see. Have you seen uh, any ads or the... or the uh, the What do you call that on Netflix? Like the screen? The preview screen? Thumbnail? Yeah, the thumbnail. Have you seen the physical 100? I know that's getting advertised. Not on Netflix. No. Like, so it's a Korean show about like who uh, who has like I don't know exactly what the like competition is. They're always talking about like who has the best body, who has the best physique, but it's not like oh, a it's not my like wife a, would love this. <laughs> it's not like a body like it's not they're not looking at aesthetics, but they have like it's it's kind of like crossfitters, but they also have like Olympic athletes and boxers and they're you know they're all Korean. There's like one white guy that lives in Korea because he's a baseball player. And then there's, I don't know, there's like a couple different ethnicities like thrown in there, but it, they're basically all Korean. Um, but it's like a real life squid games. Like they're doing these crazy like <laughs> obstacle challenges, endurance challenges. Dude, it is awesome. It's awesome. And I've been watching it, it in the English dub, which is like really yeah. great. Yeah. Do, is there some danger involved? Like how is this like squid games? Um, I don't know. It's just very dramatic. They have like crazy looking challenges at the end. They have to, they have like torso busts of their bodies made and they have to like smash them if they get eliminated. Um, but a Whoa. few people have gotten hurt. Like they're, these challenges are like definitely pretty intense, man. They have some, how crazy... long is it before uh -huh. we get the real running man where it's just like a, a game show where the contestants die at the end. It's totally coming in our future. Like <laughs> it the... might desensitization of media is going to be so complete that eventually that's where everything is going to go. It might. That's That would be wild to think about. I think we're a, a little ways off from there, but maybe not as far off as I think. Oh, man. Uh, let's see. I also watched the three-episode documentary on the disappearance of Malaysia Flight 370. That was pretty good. I liked watching that uh, while doing a uh, like trans well actually I, this wasn't during a, a pacific crossing i was flying basically the same route i was flying from sydney i think to singapore and i fly like right over you know malaysia indonesia and i was like this is where the malaysia flight like turned this way went off the radar turned the under uh, other way and i'm in the same plane i'm in a triple seven so i'm like yeah this is kind of weird that i'm watching this what was the cause of the crash I mean, they, they only spec, they don't know yet. I mean, they, oh, they, they can don't only, know well, man. Yeah. Ugh, so that's haunting. It is very haunting. It's, it's pretty interesting yeah. uh, documentary. Um, let's see. I'm all caught up on the Mandalorian season three. Definitely some of the best Star Wars content. Baby Yoda. Ever made. Yeah. Grogu. Baby Yoda. 
I, I'm not technically a certified Star Warsologist, but I did minor in Star Warsology. At Harvard? Well, I grew up with all that. How'd you have time so. when you were studying contentology already? I just never You're overachiever. <laughs> I can yeah. tell by your blurry eyes. Man, I I I decided that I like I, I definitely used to be a Star Wars fanboy, but these days I am a fan man. <laughs> oh, that's better. Yeah, I think of your fan man because you're like. What would you say? You're like a. You're like a. You had a pretty good one about you were a half formed manatee boy or something. Yeah, a man boy. A man boy. When I was uh, yeah, whenever I was a kid, I went with my dad to visit this old lady in our church, and uh, when we walked in, she goes to my dad. You can sit here, and the man boy can sit here. <laughs> oh, that's right. And I was the man boy. <laughs> that's right. But then I, I think you said on uh, your guest appearance on the Skydiving podcast uh, with Busqueezy, you said that like wind tunnel training turned you into like a f- fully formed man child out of like man a. Boy. Yeah, I don't know. You had a pretty good one. Well, my uh, singer. my gamer tag that I've used for years. If anybody wants to play Ghost Recon with me, is Manatee Boy, Manatee and boy. Uh, I. I chose that two reasons. One, no one had chosen it yet, so I didn't have any numbers behind it. It didn't have to be Manatee Boy 69420. <laughs> two, nobody wants to be killed by Manatee Boy. <laughs> the man boy sits here. I love it. You can sit here, and the man boy can sit here. <laughs> uh, so I'm also... Um, so I also found out recently... I'll wrap up my content circuit soon, but dude, I'm dating a contentologist. It is awesome. I mean, she didn't. Oh man, that's so great. She didn't get her degree at Harvard, but this, this, I realized that she didn't go to Yale, did she? <laughs> Gross, disgusting. I knew there was something wrong I with know. her. You've debased yourself <laughs> by dating a Yaleite. I mean, so she, we, we took a trip to New York recently, and she gave me this like 15 minute spiel. On the intricacies of American Horror Story and how oh, all, nice. all the different seasons are connected. Like you, I had watched one season of American Horror Story because of you bringing it to the podcast, the like 1980s uh, thriller killer um, style one. But I didn't realize like all the seasons are like different, but they're all connected and they have they have the same characters, like you know, kind of carefully. Um, spread out through the different seasons. So there's all these fan theories about how the different seasons like tie together. Um, and it's a uh, Ryan Murphy show. I think he created Glee and the Jeffrey Dahmer series. So I love when a creator has like different genres of content that they do really well, like horror and like, you know, warm hearted, like musical comedy. Like, I don't know. Just super... I could do without that second one, but I do like the horror. <laughs> I actually, I watched some Glee. I really liked Glee. It was just like, I, just obviously the it's somebody that cares about the like the details that gets like a perfect cast that's like really talented and has chemistry. So I don't know. I, I just was totally sold. I was like, this is what our show is. Like she's selling a piece of content for me, and so now I'm watching American Horror Story. But I started at season one. Because I'm realizing that is the only way to consume American horror, horror story, thanks to Madeline. So you have to, yeah, uh, yeah. I uh, that sounds really awesome. Um, that is exactly the reason why we wanted to start the show because we would always do that to people, try to sell them on content. We're like, well, we just do that 
over the internet. And uh, <laughs> two, if you bring Glee to the show, I'm going to put my fist through the camera. Well, you're going to love this then because the last thing on my content circuit – no, no, no. It's not Glee. But you know I have to do something to disappoint you. And since I don't really listen to Dave Matthews Band anymore – going to talk about love shows, Brett. <laughs> My my last content circuit is Love is Blind, the new season, oh, and no. I'm loving it. It's so good. Uh, uh, I've seen enough of it. Melissa loves it. So I love Love I've is I've seen blind. enough Love is Blind. We just worked. Well, I call it work because I was actively trying to ignore it, uh-huh. but uh, she has watched <clears throat> the first two seasons of Love Island, and I got to tell you, it's not great. You're not a fan? It's not no, this is the not U.S. CCH worthy. This is the U.S. version, though. I watched the British version. Yeah. So, well, I'm sorry for you. <laughs> yeah. Hey, man. To each their own. We all have our own spiritual yeah. beliefs and content preferences. And we each brought. Uh, I think I might have brought more than one reality show to this show. So <laughs> yeah. what? Am, I have no foot to stand on. You don't. I've talked about a few reality shows and hated myself afterwards. <laughs> Felt so dirty. Went against everything I believed in. Oh, man. God, I love Love is Blind. All right. So what's on? <laughs> Impress me with your content, circuit, buddy, since you're so... Uh, you're High uh, and mighty, I think, <laughs> is what you're saying. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I have have like a I have like a true content circuit going lately. So I have at all times I've had a movie, a show, a book that I'm halfway through, a podcast, and then a video game. And actually, the the original idea for the content circuit that I had was like I always do this. I always have like a little bit of each one of these things going at every you know at every moment. I bet everybody's like that. And then I realized, like, no, not everybody does that. That's a crazy thing to do. But I have been doing that lately. Uh, so on my Steam Deck, I'm playing The Last of Us, uh, the re-release, probably the third time I bought it, and probably the tenth time I've talked about Last of Us on this show. But now, so I mean, it came out perfectly coincided with the end of the show. It was set to totally to manipulate me into buying it for a third time but i got it on the steam deck now so i'm able to play it sitting in bed which is awesome um i started rereading the lost fleet series which oh i've already read four times i started rereading it again because it's been just long enough that i've forgotten all the details i'm like oh i should go back and do that again and as I'm reading it, I'm been surprised how little of it I actually remember. Like I remember the broad strokes, which I talked about it here on the show. Cause it's my favorite series of all time, and uh, but there's so many little details that every time I go back and read it, I'm like, oh yeah, this is why I'm reading 17 books for the fourth time. Cause there's so much good stuff in here. So I'm doing that. Um, I've started listening to it's a podcast i found a while ago it's called new players joined and it's uh defunct now they stopped doing it a couple of years ago but uh it's a podcast all about video games the video games we love and why we love them and they bring a person on each week uh like a famous person ron funches or somebody and they talk about you know like their favorite video game and then these two guys are just this these really good uh <clears throat> They're good, uh, like, improv comics, so mm-hmm. they have really good banter back and forth. It's hilarious. And I was just like, oh, that's a cool show. I'm just going to work my way through the entire 
uh, catalog of 176 episodes over the next several months. So I've just been listening to that podcast anytime I have podcast time. Uh, I uh, oh, I just watched uh, Hex, which is a skydiving movie made by Andy Malkioti, oh, who's yeah. famous skydiver. I've wanted and, to see uh, that. It is. Uh, you can tell he's making a B movie, and it's so good at being that. It's so perfect. All the things with skydiving, all the things you ever wanted to say about skydivers, it's all in there. And uh, it's just like the right amount of cheesiness. And then I was surprised that there is like this mythology running through it. And at the end of it, I was like, I'm just like, man, as a skydiver, that is so genius. That's such an awesome idea, which I don't want to ruin it for any skydivers. But you should definitely watch it. Oh, man. Especially if you weren't going to watch it otherwise. Just watch it. It's really cool. And uh, TV show. I've been watching, uh, it just came out, it's called Beef on Netflix with uh, Stephen Ewan and uh, Ali Wong. It's like they are, uh, so it's Glenn from The Walking Dead and Ali Wong who is like a comedian. And it's like they get in this road rage incident and they're both like total hotheads. And it just keeps evolving and the scenario just keeps getting worse and worse. And uh, it's pretty awesome. It goes from low level dread to just like, oh my god, this could actually totally happen Two psychos get into a road rage incident. I've and, I, uh, I that's actually downloaded all circuit. that. Yeah, I downloaded it's good. You should watch on my it. iPad because it looked like kind of interesting. Dude, that's awesome. Yeah, Hex good. Hex has been on my radar for a while, and our mutual friend Santes, who like I oh, introduced yeah. to skydiving, and is now a way more prolific skydiver than I am. And uh, she flies with me every week. Flies with you every week. She's like a pillar in the Colorado skydiving community now. It's really cool, but um, I think she said it was pretty cheesy. <laughs> well, it is, but it's a B-movie, and it's made totally. to be that. I love that. Yeah, it's it's awesome. I am endorsing it because I thought it was awesome, and uh, also it's made by our friend, Andy Malchiotti, so you should buy it on Amazon. That's awesome. I definitely will do that. Yeah, I, I don't think I have ever heard of a skydiving movie that's not, you know, that's not like a, like a specifically about just like skydiving but it's like a fictional story about skydiving created by a skydiver i don't think that's ever happened like you look at like point break or drop zone and there it's you know it's like a hollywood movie about skydiving so they get a lot of stuff wrong so i would definitely want to see what it's like to you know a movie that's actually created by skydivers that's really cool they definitely hollywoodize some things like for instance the plane only ever flies with the main characters on it, which I know exactly why they did that, because you couldn't film in a plane with a full skydiving plane. There's no room. So the plane will like fly with like five people or six people, and they say a bunch of cheesy skydiving stuff, but it's all – it's just like, oh, my God. I have totally heard somebody say this before. Like seriously, somebody has said this. And uh, it's about – I'll just go into it a little bit. Uh-huh. It's about – a, a cursed skydive. So that concept, you don't know why it's cursed, but I remember seeing the preview for it and I was like, oh my God, what is this idea? Cursed skydive? Like where could you possibly go with this? But at the end, I was like genuinely like, man, this is some awesome mythology. I was That's not awesome. expecting to feel that. But I, at the end, there's like the closing scene and if you're a skydiver, you're just like, oh my God, it's so good. It's exactly what I've always wanted somebody to say. Oh so, man. Oh, for a skydiver, wait. you should definitely watch it. It's because they weren't wearing their lucky jerseys. It's probably exactly. What it was. 
Yeah. Totally. Yeah. Whatever that means. <laughs> <laughs> I was just going with it. <laughs> All right. On that note, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, let's get into this bleary eyed content. <laughs> Welcome back to the Content Clearinghouse. Brett, it's your time to shine, my friend. <laughs> I don't know how much shining is going to uh, happen, but let's get into it. Uh, so this was a really interesting content piece for me because, to be honest, I had a completely different plan than what I'm going to be discussing. Um, originally, I was going to be covering the book Columbine by Dave Cullen, which I read years ago, but I still talk about all the time. Uh, to various friends and colleagues. And as a true crime fan, I love a good in-depth analysis of events. I love learning about psychopaths. And actually, most of what I know about psychopathy, I learned. Uh, and also about how it's being treated in, in modern times. I learned actually from the book Columbine. And um, uh, like it was also fascinating to learn just how absurdly incorrect the common narrative about the uh, Columbine shooting was and like how it was portrayed in the news back then. Um, and there's some fascinating details about that tragedy that very few people know about unless you do a deep dive into the story like the book does. Uh, one of the details that still sticks out to me was there was an attempted police cover-up and the possible preventability of Columbine and also the grander plans of the two young shooters and how they were actually trying to kill hundreds of, you know, people at their school, but with the they're bombs, right? the bombs, they, wanted yeah. the, uh, they wanted to kill the first responders too. Yeah. They, they, they had like a bomb set up in a structure in the building, but their ineptitude in bomb making was what brought the actual number of killed down to a still staggering 15. Um, but shortly after I started my outline, the most recent Nashville school shooting happened. And at first I decided to press on with my content piece because I feel like it makes books like Columbine, which was originally published in 2009, which was 10 years after the Columbine massacre. It makes books like that even more relevant right now, but man, getting back into the story and details just started feeling too dark, not only for the podcast, but just for me personally. Uh, so I decided to pivot. Um, I mean, we, you know, speaking of that Nashville shooting, though, before you yeah. move on, um, I'm sure they cover this in, in the book, in column, the Columbine book. But do you remember how like the, the police response was basically like they didn't want to go in right away? Oh, yeah. They didn't have like the proper. So what I thought was really interesting about the Nashville shooting is I watched the body cam footage of the, the cops that went in there. And I really think that what happened at Columbine has totally changed the response that happens today because those guys, it was like three of them or something. They went in without backup and backup met them later. But, you know, like with the Columbine shooting, the cops were – they didn't want to do that. They were like worried about going in there without the SWAT team or whoever it was that was supposed to handle that. And the guys in Nashville were just like – just like threw themselves into, you know, the line of fire – like literally, and I feel like that's probably a response to what happened at Columbine because, you know, people grew up knowing that story and like became police officers and they're just like never again, like not on my watch, you know. And so I thought that was really awesome to see that, that, that uh, response so, now. So, yeah, I'm going to I'm going to disagree with you because uh, I I personally think the reason that they 
you know, and I, I don't know, this is speculation, but it Columbine was so long ago. We've had so many school shootings and, you know, when Columbine happened, you're, you're right that the SWAT team like showed up at the school and they basically did nothing. They're like, we don't know how to handle this. And at the time, that was really the first school shooting like that that has happened. I was also in the book he talked about it was one of the uh, first experiences where there was like live news coverage as it was happening, like all over international news immediately. Like that was really the first massacre and tragedy, like, you know, right at the end of the 90s is when we started having that 24 hour news cycle. And this like, you know, just got tons of ratings. And it sort of, I think, you know, continued to enable or promote that 24 hour news cycle, which is really unfortunate. But um, I think that the, the Russian was a response to the school shooting that was way more recent in Texas. I think it's Uvalde. That was the one where, you know, parents were at the school begging the cops to go in. There's like tons of police officers just like standing outside, just like we're waiting, you know, to like be told what to do. Like we're not going to go in there without the proper equipment. Like I, I don't know exactly the details, but the person that so took pissed as a parent. Oh, there, I mean, they, there was like police that were like, preventing parents from just rushing in themselves. They're like, if you're not going to do something, I'm going to save my kids. They like hearing gunshots, you know, from outside the school. And the person that took down the shooter was like an off duty border patrol officer that got in his, like heard over the scan or maybe over the news, like what was happening, got in his car, drove like an hour off duty. like went in with his, you know, his pistol and took down the shooter himself. So my opinion was like, I mean, they just, you know, they just got skewered in the news. Like, you know, this is like the state with all the guns. And they're like, you know, the way to prevent these things is more people have guns. And that turned out to obviously just not be a logical argument because of what happened. And I think it was the Uvalde shooting where that happened. So that, yeah, thank God for the, you know, what they did in Nashville, because I'm sure they prevented many, many, many more deaths. Well, maybe the message of my theory didn't get through to everyone. What's the but, mes- uh, the message of your theory? That the cops can't wait. They just have to go in. Yeah. And something oh, no, like that no, for sure. But I feel like that message got to Nashville. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, the, I mean, God, it's the whole thing is just horribly tragic. And as I said, I, I, you know, we, we talk, we talk about on the show all the time that we, that content is both uh, like storytelling content. It's a way to explore these ideas and these concepts, but it's also just pure escapism from the dark realities Mm -hmm. that we face today. So I decided to go with the latter route. I wanted pure escapism for my content piece. So thank God. (laughs) (laughs) So I I brushed off uh, my list of, you know, some of my favorite content that hasn't made it to the show yet. And I had the idea uh, for going for some like more positive vibes. I wanted to talk about something epic, something heartwarming, something positive and thrilling, and maybe just something with just a tiny little sprinkle of some sibling incest vibes as well. Uh, this is a, right. <laughs> <laughs> this is a film, which, which porn side are we talking about? <laughs> this is a film that has no doubt left a significant cultural impact, even if it might be a little obscure and underrated. Now, buddy, I'm not sure if you've seen or heard of this one, but today I'm talking about an old, old 1980s sci-fi adventure film titled Episode 5, 
The Empire Strikes Back. <laughs> oh, which one is that? Is that from the uh, the uh, prequel trilogy? A little, you know, yeah, it's one of those movies. You've heard about them. Is that the one with Jar Jar? <laughs> it's definitely not the one. <laughs> Having Jar Jar Binks in your movie guarantees we're never going to talk about it on the podcast. <laughs> and you've talked about Love is Blind or whatever on here. And I've talked about... <laughs> What was that? America's Next Top Model. Yeah. I talked about that. If Jar Jar Binks was on either of those shows, we never would have brought them up. Ever. That's true. Yeah. That would have been where we drew the line. I remember. Those shows are great, though. I remember. <laughs> no Jar Jar. I remember during COVID when I was just shitting on the Star Wars prequels like I love to. And you told me, you're like, Revenge of the Sith is actually a good movie. Like, you need to give it another try. I was like, all right, haven't watched this movie since I was disappointed in theaters as a child. I'm going to just start from episode one. I'm going to rewatch all three. And I. Oh, don't I, do it that way. <laughs> don't do it that way. I, I needed That's to. That's why you burn out before you get to the good one. <laughs> I need the framework, though, of all the, like, politics and relationships. And I still. The trade routes. I couldn't so make fun. it. I never made it to Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> I know because you didn't listen to me because you <laughs> tried to watch all the Jar Jar movies first. They're just so bad. So yes. bad. Did, did you ever watch Revenge of the Sith or you actually didn't get there? I didn't get there. Not this time. Oh my God. Even it's COVID. the best lightsaber battles. Even COVID lockdown with absolutely nothing to do. And I ran out <laughs> of good things to watch. I still couldn't finish the prequel trilogy. <laughs> <laughs> they're that because bad you tried to watch all of them <laughs> all right get one more shot just watch the third one and if you're like i kind of need to know about these trade routes just don't do it just watch <laughs> the third one you know everything you need to know anakin jar jar pod racing you got it all okay just watch the just watch the darth maul lightsaber fight scene from the first movie skip all of the other six and a half hours of episode one and two and then watch number three that is the only good thing about the prequels uh, that, well, the first two at least. Not watching the, them? The Darth Maul. <laughs> yeah, not watching. The Darth Maul getting <laughs> sliced in half. Such a good moment. Oh, my oh, God. Oh, man. I love yeah. it. All right. Well, I can already feel that the force is strong with this episode of the Content Clearing House. I can feel the tingling deep inside my Jedi-loving soul. Uh, so what do we call our uh, listeners these days? Listenerologists? Is that right? Yeah. So, sure. so to our listenerologists, if you're a Star Wars fan at all, then you already know that the Empire Strikes Back film is arguably the best film in the entire franchise and one of the best movies ever. Um, but I'm still going to just going to be used listening to why Brett <laughs> loves it so much, which I'm really excited to hear. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm still going to try my best to convince our listenerologists to go watch this movie immediately because that's our show. That's literally what we yeah. do. And if you're not a fan of Star Wars, then what the hell are you doing listening to our podcast? Go back to your non-nerdy, empty life and leave us to our lightsaber battles. Yeah, and if you like Jar Jar, then you're wrong. <laughs> you're just wrong. I want to, if, okay, if somebody out there agrees with Josh that Revenge of the Sith is worth <laughs> revisiting, you should email us, contentclearinghouse at gmail.com, or we also have an Instagram, at the Content Clearinghouse. Um, I would love to just hear one other person support Josh on his soapbox. <laughs> I would too. I need that. Because <laughs> nobody has nobody has ever said, well, have you seen one of the prequels? 
Revenge of the Sith is actually worth a watch. Nobody has ever said that to me except for you. Yeah, well, we went to the same school. That's true. Harvard. Harvard. Yeah, okay, so uh, just in case you haven't seen the movie in the wa- in a while, the film takes place after the, dis- after the destruction of the Death Star in A New Hope. The Empire, led by Darth Vader, of course, is in hot pursuit of the Rebel Alliance. Uh, the movie starts with the Rebel Alliance evacuating their base on Hoth as they are pursued by the Empire's forces. After a brief battle, Luke travels to the swamp planet Dagobah to be trained in the ways of the Force by the Jedi Master Yoda, while Han, Leia, Chewbacca, and C-3PO flee to Cloud City to seek refuge. The Millennium and Falcon- Chewbacca has no trouble fleeing because he's not weighed down by any medals from the first movie. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, one of my, like, a picture that pops up on my phone a lot is, is you and Mike wearing all your skydiving medals and, like, holding all your, like, trophies and awards. And I just, like, love the idea if Chewbacca was, you know, more human <laughs> and less Wookiee, he just, like, wears all his medals because he's, like, totally, like, egotistical, wants to show off to everybody, like, what a well decorated Wookiee he is. Like, that's a hilarious thought. <laughs> doesn't he has them uh beretted into his fur (laughs) like this is a this is a creature that doesn't wear underwear and he like wears his medals (laughs) he's got a cod piece built of medals god i love that idea Uh, so the 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 millennium falcon group they encounter some dangerous obstacles and enemies while evading the empire including the bounty hunter boba fett iconic character and the giant slug creature jabba the hut Ooh, yes the sock yeah. puppet slug <laughs> that's the sock puppet slug so everything yeah. turns out great for them once they get to cloud city just kidding fan favorite lando calrissian double crosses them all leading them right into darth vader's trap uh what a fucking sh- asshole <laughs> shout out to lando he's played by billy d williams more commonly known as the guy from those 1980s colt 45 beer commercials link in the show notes commonly known i don't know when i stumbled across those colt 45 uh commercials but man i i knew there would be a time in my life when like talking about billy d williams in those commercials would would suddenly be applicable and this is that moment so definitely check out those links um, a younger version in the movie Solo is also played by uh, Childish Gambino, a.k.a. Donald Glover, a.k.a., in my opinion, the most talented person alive. And he's more commonly known for that very unsettling music video, This Is America. I put that link in the show notes as well. And that little tiny scene in the first Spider-Man. Oh, yeah. Homecoming. <laughs> yep. Commonly known. <laughs> cameo. <laughs> commonly known Cameo. God, I love Donald Glover. Oh, he's awesome in The Martian. The Martian? He's the steely-eyed rocket man. Yeah, he's the guy that figures out the uh, the equation or whatever it is for oh, them to yeah. slingshot around Earth and get back to rescue Matt Damon. That's right. I totally forgot he's in that movie. Oh, my God. He's been in so many amazing things. And he's also Matt just... Damon's got a good cameo in The Martian, by the way. <laughs> As the guy that's stuck on Mars. Is the main star? Is <laughs> the titular character? I love that cameo. Quite the cameo. Cameo. Matt Damon is like it's a deeply embedded cameo as the top billing 
<laughs> star. Yes. Yeah. It's meta, meta cameo. I love it. Um, but I digress. Uh, the film. What were you talking about? <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> Empire Strikes Back, maybe. So the film reaches its climax at the end with one of the most epic reveals and twists in content history that Luke is actually Darth Vader's son. Uh, it can be difficult and triggering when big family secrets come to light. So Luke's daddy Darth makes the news a little more palatable by slicing off his hand with a lightsaber. You did not make that any more palatable by saying <laughs> spoiler alert. What if oh, people shit. haven't seen this movie? This movie released in 1980. <laughs> yeah. I think it's past. I, we Haven't we come up with the spoiler statute of limitations? Yeah, I think it's the... It, whatever we say goes. I think it's how we do it around <laughs> that's here. It. That's it. Yeah. You know, that's that's seriously some bad parenting, though. Darth is. is, he's not known for his his qualities as a father. Loving fatherly nature. <laughs> yeah. Well, speaking of family secrets, I would be remiss if I didn't again mention uh, that there is an incredibly awkward kiss between Luke and Leia, whose potential romance was implied during A New Hope as well. But of course, the creators behind Star Wars decided that they would be twins by the, by the time Return of the Jedi came around, which made the previous romantic implications pretty weird. See, this is what happens when you don't plan anything out, but then you try to retcon in that you did plan it out later. It becomes incest, incest. Yep. But hey, yeah. these things happen, unfortunately. Hey, it was the <laughs> 80s. <laughs> I feel like that could apply to almost anything that happened in the 80s. <laughs> like, you could just... Yeah. Um, totally. Well, speaking of the 80s, that's when this movie happened. 1980, The Empire Strikes Back. It is the second installment in the original Star Wars trilogy, a.k.a. the good... The first good Star Wars trilogy. Uh, it was directed by Irvin Kirshner and produced by, of course, George Lucas. Uh, behind the scenes... The production of The Empire Strikes Back was plagued by a variety of challenges. So the film's budget was actually significantly higher than its predecessor. Uh, it was filmed in multiple locations across Europe, including Nor uh, yeah, Norway, Switzerland, and Italy. Additionally, the cast and crew had to deal with unpredictable weather conditions and complex special effects. So the opening planet Hoth scenes, they were shot in, I don't know how to say this, a uh, fence? Norway, I'm guessing, F-I-N-S-E. So those scenes in Norway definitely added some realism. Uh, they actually had one of the area's worst snowstorms in half a century. They had massive blizzards, 40-mile-per-hour winds, temperatures between negative 26 and negative 38 degrees Fahrenheit. I read on uh, Wikipedia, I put the link in the show notes, it's actually a really interesting wiki article it's it's just about the special effects in the empire strikes back because this movie was so pivotal it was so cutting edge it you know it really um experimented with new technologies and it just like put everybody and everything to the test um but I on think star wars pretty much invented the motion cam where they would move the camera past something to simulate like a model moving yeah like a or like a motion capture camera movements i, I pretty sure they invented that and i also read that there was a, a, a scene where luke was it's like where luke is s standing on the tauntaun looking over a hill or something and it's like in this 
like raging snowstorm. And I've read that they filmed that from the the door of the hotel. They made uh, Lou, uh, Mark Hamill go out in the snow, like in the crazy snowstorm you're talking about, and stand out in the parking lot, and they filmed him. He's like the only one out there, and then you know, he's getting blown off his feet by the crazy snowstorm. They're all hiding in the comfort and warmth of the hotel. Yeah, that it was. was a, uh, it was definitely um, no joke when they were out in Norway. Um, but yeah, you're right. I mean, they they definitely pioneered like so much new technology, and they're you know they're combining live action with like stop motion animation with puppetry with the very first like CG. Like, oh, so awesome, man! So there's awesome. a stop motion scene with a tauntaun running where mm-hmm. they uh, it's at the beginning where he's running across the snowfield and it's like from overhead, and I, I believe it was one of the first shots where they had. Uh, a camera movement in a stop motion scene. Cause like the camera's moving one way and then the Tauntauns being stop motion animated below. Uh, and that was apparently super revolutionary at the time. Yeah. All the, uh, do you call them ATAT walkers or at, at walkers? I never figured I out. I always what... said at, at, yeah, I think I got that from you. I always called them ATAT walkers as a kid. I had like a really cool ATAT toy. It was like my best toy that I had at that time. It was really cool. But that, like, a lot of that stop motion as well, and like, you know, combining models with like superimposing live action filming over it. So cool, man. Well, the so this article on Wikipedia that's just about the special effects in, in Empire Strikes Back, they, they talked about in Norway, the, the weather cleared only twice while filming. And on some days, filming was completely impossible. And one of the issues they ran into was the frigid temps made the acetate film reel brittle. And also they had problems with the camera lenses icing over. So in one of the articles that I found doing research for this, I, I found a, a picture of this that's really crazy. But to, to counter this issue, they actually tried to keep the camera lenses cool so they wouldn't have like frost and condensation buildup. But simultaneously, they needed to keep the camera body warm to protect the film and the battery. God. And also the, the poor, poor camera operator's hands. Cause like they, these guys were out there. Uh, he's expendable. <laughs> I mean, Luke's hand was expendable. So if the camera operators want to be a part of Star Wars, they got to be like Luke. It's method acting. But these the these this crew like they were outside for up to eleven hours, subjected to thin air, limited visibility. Some of them got mild frostbite. One of them like slipped and fell and like broke a bunch of ribs. Like it was Whoa. wild. And this was just. For the scenes on Hoth. Apparently, the filming in Norway alone, it almost broke the budget for the movie. It almost ended the whole project. Wild. But despite these obstacles, the film's creative team was able to deliver an obviously impressive product that set itself apart from other films created around the same time period. And honestly, still kind of sets the standard for quality filmmaking. Uh, We can all agree that the special effects in Empire Strikes Back are incredible especially considering it's 40 years old. But you can't have a good film without a good plot. It's all about the storytelling. So let me dive into the plot of the film a little bit more because it's nothing short of brilliant. Instead of relying on a traditional hero's journey narrative, the film presents a more nuanced and complex story. The stakes are higher, the conflicts are more personal, and the emotional beats are more profound. These characters are faced with difficult choices, The decisions they make have far-reaching consequences. You have the budding romance between Han and Leia, 
much more appropriate. <laughs> you have the mentor-mentee dynamic between Luke and Yoda. You have this bitter, bitter rivalry between Vader and his sub subordinates. These all add layers of depth and richness to the story. Like, even though this is a space opera, like, doing rewatchings, like, I rewatch this movie, like, every couple of years. And I, it just feels, like, so grounded, and all of the interpersonal conflicts feel so relatable. Even though, like, when you look at Star Wars, and I think that this is, I think that this is where things, like, had, like, took hold culturally. Because you just had, like, and A New Hope, like this was just such a cutting edge movie. A lot of people just thought this was going to be a total flop. It was a giant risk as a film. But I think it was these interpersonal relationships that like gripped audiences and really hooked them and brought them in. And then everything else was just like so dazzling and original. And because the first movie, like it was like, what's Star Wars? You know, nobody like it wasn't a household name. By the time Empire Strikes Back comes around, Star Wars is huge. So there was a lot of pressure on, you know, creating something amazing. And I, I feel like Empire Strikes Back is just one of those things where it was like everything came together. It met and exceeded all the expectations. And I just think it's like the only time in history you're ever going to have that with a Star Wars film. Because now the president has been set for that. You know, I don't think... Return of the Jedi had as much of a cultural impact. Like the three new movies, like, you know, there's all kinds of like debate uh, about those three. Like there's, there's like, you know, there's polarizing movies like the last Jedi, like some people love it. Some people hate it, but the empire strikes back was just like right in that sweet spot of like, there was only one movie. Everybody expected something awesome and it was awesome. Um, but yeah. When the first, uh, when the, prequel trilogy came out everybody was just like why why are you doing this to us why are you ruining what we love uh what what was awesome about the original trilogy though is that it's like the three movies have a very distinct arc you have like the hero's journey in the first one and then in the second movie i mean it is like the second act of a play where it starts, you know, pretty much where the first one leaves off and every, everything's in good shape and it just gets progressively worse and worse until the end where, I mean, they're they're essentially defeated at the end. And then the third movie uh, is like a redemptive arc where they, you know, they bring it back and the heroes all, you know, right away into the sunsets. Sunsets? Yes, two. But uh, that's that's like one of the coolest things about that trilogy is that it has that arc, which I, based on the incestual relationship between Luke and Leia, <laughs> I can't really say that George Lucas had that planned out to start with, but he definitely got very lucky he with did. the way that arc worked and the cultural impact it had. Look, I, I don't think it's any, um, uh, how do I put this and not be offensive to the creator of something I love so much? <laughs> Don't I, even try. Just say it. <laughs> I don't. I don't think that it's a surprise to me that the second film, Empire Strikes Back, is so good, and it was directed by somebody other than George Lucas. I think George Lucas is a great ideas man. I think the prequel trilogy proved that he wasn't a great director. Oh I'm, yeah, that I'm pretty sure he directed all three down, of the prequels. 
Oh God, is that what's wrong with them? I don't know. I think is I that think, why they're like this. I mean, he just he got very very involved. If he wasn't the director on all three, he got very involved in the process. Whereas like the Empire Strikes Back, different director. You know, and a lot of people don't know that. They just assume George Lucas directed like all Star Wars movies. That's not what happened at all. But you know, it, that's a great point about that overarching trilogy story. I mean, the like the best Avengers movie is Infinity War, but you have to have that sort of setup to have the satisfaction of Endgame. You know, and mm-hmm. so um, I don't think Return of the Jedi had quite the same like impact on me. There's just something about the Ewoks dancing in the forest. It just yeah. like Empire Strikes Back just hits. It just hits better. It just hits different. Even you though know? Jedi was like my movie because that was the one that I was old enough to see. And uh, like around the time it came out, whenever it was, when I was like three or four, however old I was. But it was kind of the start of when George Lucas became more concerned about the merchandising than he Mm. was about the story he was telling. Because one of the genius things that George Lucas did was, I I think early on, he took like a cut from his pay for to get the merchandising and royalty rights. And so he became like this multi-billionaire by selling toys. Mm -hmm. But like you get the Ewoks and... You know, in the all the, the prequel movies, all the, like thousands of characters that are in there. And it's all just like to sell more toys, mm-hmm. which when you get that kind of inspiration for what you're doing, then the original idea is going to be bastardized just a little bit. No matter no matter how hard you're trying not to make it that way, because yeah. in the back of your mind, you're always thinking like, well, how can I sell more Ewok toys? <laughs> we have to have like slightly different Ewoks with slightly different outfits because I was that kid that was like, oh. Like, I need Han Solo with the long sleeves on Cloud City because I just have the one with the vest, right? Like, <laughs> I melted so many Star Wars toys on the stove when I was a kid. I grew up in Texas. We had a blasting pit in the backyard, so you know I was melting PVC plastic in the kitchen. Why were you, do- I Why were you melting them? Because I was an idiot. But... Uh, <laughs> I remember specifically one time melting the Rancor handler, you know, like the big fat guy who's dressed like a caveman. I remember melting him from the feet and then just him slowly dissolving until it got too hot. I was like, ah, my hand. And I'm like, that guy's probably worth like $700 now. What the heck? What the heck? Why were you melting your toy? Because I'm a psychotic child. I mean, I like, like, I definitely was a kid that liked playing with fire, but I didn't melt my, like, beloved, valuable Star Wars toys. I loved those things. I was not what you would call a good decision maker. One time I sold (laughs) all of my Transformers toys. God damn it. All of them at a garage sale for, like, $8. I had, like, a Home Depot bucket full of them. I sold them all. That wouldn't even What's pay with me? for like half of a Chipotle burrito now with guacamole. Like $8. My God. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's. I'll never get that melted Rancor handler back. <laughs> not, not with that attitude. <laughs> oh, my God. God, I love Star Wars so much because we can have conversations like this. <laughs> So many, like, good memories of mine are just, like... I mean, when I was a kid, like, something I love about these movies is, uh, you know, playing, like, imagination as a kid. Like, Han Solo, 
I didn't want to, I didn't want to, I didn't grow up wanting, sorry, dad, if you ever listen to this episode, I know he listens to Content Clearinghouse sometimes, but when I was a kid, I wanted to grow up not to be Harrison Ford, but to be the things that his characters were. I wanted to be Indiana Jones one, and I wanted to be Han Solo two. Like he was just Brett so- once dressed up as Indiana Jones at the wind tunnel party, <laughs> I did. and he tied his whip to the actuator arm of the door, and then jumped in the tunnel and flew like he was Indiana Jones flying behind the back of like a tailgate airplane. Yeah, totally. Ah! It was oh, so man. good. It was pretty good. It was pretty good. I think I went great. in there with like holding my hat, like my Indiana Jones. <laughs> he totally this was, did. This was back in the day when we could get away with like flying without helmets on and like we could hang off the turn veins. We take Red Bulls up there, drink turn veins or uh, drink. Re- wow. Bleary eyed. Most drink. epic era of wind tunnel dumb oh, ever. The golden era. It was it, the, the Star Wars original trilogy is like the we were in the wind tunnel original trilogy era for sure. That's the Sky Venture era. Yeah. Uh, all right, I'm going to try to get this uh, outline back on the rails here. Um, <laughs> That's my job. I got to derail you. So, so these characters, you know, including the the melted Rancor trader, like the these guys all faced it. Faced. Oh, bring him up. <laughs> it's just such a funny thought. He, <laughs> that guy, like, already kind of looked like a little melted, and you had to make it worse for him. You know. <laughs> His main job was to cry for the <laughs> Rancor, and I melted him. Oh man, have you? Are you all caught up on the Mandalorian? I am. I'm still gonna go off on a tangent. No, I'm not. Uh, but there's some go, good. Go right ahead. There's some good baby Rancor scenes in that, dude. You gotta. Oh man. Oh, oh, such a great. I, I had a Rancor too, and I blew him up with fireworks. <laughs> of course, you did. <laughs> <laughs> and then just to make the trainer's life even worse. He was already heartbroken. Then you melt the guy yeah. in your stove. God. <laughs> All right. He so, his owner. so, um, yeah, the, uh, where was I? <laughs> something about the, uh, I don't know. Something about these, these dynamics adding uh, a layer of depth and richness to the story. So the film's climax which reveals the shocking truth about Darth Vader's identity. It's one of the most memorable moments in cinema history. And it's a, it's and a also bold... misquoted. It is very misquoted. Yeah. I think everyone says like, Luke, I am your father, but it's actually no, I am. No, I am yeah. your father. Thank you. Glad we finally set the record straight. Classic. Like line. the nerds we are. Um, so it, it, it was a bold move that took the franchise in a new direction and it set the stage for the epic conclusion in Return of the Jedi. But what really sets the Empire Strikes Back apart from other films in the Star Wars franchise is its tone. The movie is darker, it's more introspective, it's more philosophical than any other entry in the series. The, the themes of loss, betrayal, and self-discovery, they're explored in a way that is both profound and relatable. And actually, the, uh, the, the I am your father reveal is a prime example of this. It's a moment that subverts our expectations as moviegoers. It challenges us to question our assumptions about the characters that we thought that we knew. Actually, another note about that plot point. Did you know that that famous twist ending was kept a secret from the cast and crew until filming? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so... Um, well, they, I, I think that... Uh... Did the guy that played Vader even know that was the twist? Well, no. No, he didn't because the they actually filmed it as um, 
So there's. I am your mother. Ah, no. I nailed the twist, <laughs> and they changed it in post. No, so it was like the the line in the script. I think was Obi Wan killed your father. So that was you know the quote unquote twist that everybody assumed. But there there was three people that had to keep the secret. It was Mark Hamill, because um, he was like told right before filming what was going to be dubbed with James Earl Jones's voice. Uh, the director, Irvin Kirshner, or whatever his name is, I can't remember, uh, George Lucas. I already forgot the director's name that I love so much. <laughs> <laughs> Shows up for- you remember the merchandising guy, though. <laughs> I'm telling you know, within the framework of capitalism, George Lucas is a goddamn genius, right? <laughs> yeah. Because, yeah, the, he the- tricked us all into seeing the, the pre- prequel trilogy. The- Me, a few times. <laughs> The real, the real brains behind this operation has been forgotten in the annals of history. Um, yeah, Irvin Kirshner, whatever his yeah. name was. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, those the, <laughs> those three had to keep this secret for like a year. Um, so that's that's pretty cool. That was a really cool idea. I love that. Yeah, that is awesome. Well, the uh, the Empire Strikes Back received critical acclaim upon its release, with many praising this darker tone the more mature themes, and the impressive technical achievements. Audiences also loved the movie, which went on to become one of the highest-grossing films of all time. Today, Josh, The Empire Strikes Back remains a beloved cultural touchstone, with its impact felt across the world of pop culture. Its memorable characters, iconic scenes, and memorable quotes have cemented its place as one of the most important films in cinema history. In conclusion, The Empire Strikes Back is a cinematic masterpiece that deserves its place in the pantheon of great films. Its plot, its special effects, characters, and tone all combine to create a movie that is both thrilling and thought-provoking. Whether you're a die-hard Star Wars fan or not, again, what are you doing here on our podcast if you don't like Star Wars? Well, either way, Empire Strikes Back is a must-see film that continues to stand the test of time. And remember... If you ever find yourself being crushed by the existential dread brought on by ongoing mass shootings in our schools, or you're being crushed by a 14,000-pound piston-bully snowcat, tell yourself (laughs) and the world, not today, motherfucker, and may the force be with you. (laughs) Oh, Brett. I hope you hold out for the merchandising rights in this episode, because you nailed it, buddy. It's just uh, going to be like a bloody Jeremy Renner action figure and like a snow and a melted like. raincore trainer. <laughs> oh. oh, I would be remiss if I didn't say that uh, Empire Strikes Back also brought us quite possibly the greatest YouTube video of all time with the uh, bad lip reading. <laughs> oh, yeah. Uh, Empire Strikes Back, which also brought us the offshoot greatest video of all time, <laughs> Seagull Stop It Now, uh, the Yoda <laughs> bad lip rating song that's so hilarious. When uh, my daughter, who's six, when she was a baby, a toddler, I would, uh, she'd be laying on her little like baby mat and I would play Seagull Stop It Now over and over and over. And now she knows all the words. I'll go, Hey, what's that stank? And she'll go, you put a fish in our basket. It's like a Pavlovian response now. I'll oh link this God. video. For some reason, you haven't seen it. Uh, Brett, man, that was such a, a great memory 
filled trip down Star Wars Lane. Uh, and I am impressed at how your eyes have cleared up while we've been filming this. You don't look bleary-eyed at all anymore. And man, you are on fire tonight, buddy. Oh, so happy good. to hear that. Happy to hear You never know yes. which version of me you're going to get when I'm on the road. Sometimes I'm a very serious, stoic pilot. Other times I'm kind of like sleep-deprived, loopy, goofy. You just never know, buddy. Well, you're, you're kind of loose because you're in the future right now. You already know that you survived yesterday, the day That's I'm living true. in. And so That's now you're true. like, I'm just, I'm just riding that high. There's riding a reprieve. melted <laughs> Rancor trainer high. <laughs> the reprieve from the existential dread for just a moment. You know, it's funny. <laughs> yes. I, to to uh, talk about sleep for a second, uh, I learned an interesting fact. Um, so I've known for a while, since I started flying international cargo, in like 2016, I learned a lot about sleep. And when our sleep um, rhythms, our circadian rhythms are like really disrupted, we sleep in these four hour chunks. It's really weird. And so I can't get on a time zone right now. I'm trying to get on this European, you know, summer time, whatever, whatever Brussels is in. I'm trying to get on this time zone. I'm here for a couple more days, but I'll fall asleep. I'll wake up almost to the minute because I use the sleep cycle app that tracks my sleep. I'll wake up to the minute four hours later. It's wild. So I was out having dinner in uh, Singapore with a captain that has been doing this for a while. And I was talking about this with him and he was like nodding like, yeah, yeah. And, he, and then he told me he's like really into history and the time of like when people were sailing the seas in like the 1800s. Um, and, they, and today a bell is is a, a four hours long so like when you're on a ship they have these like shifts and then they like will ring a bell but they ring this bell every four hours because of the sleep schedule so like back in the 1800s they knew about this disruption in circadian rhythms and so they like made it part of their schedule and a bell if you ever heard hear that term like in the navy mm. that is four hours long because of that uh, natural like cycle that starts to occur. I thought that was kind of interesting. I don't know why I wanted to mention that. Is that is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It has nothing to I, do with uh, Empire Strikes Back. I, it's interesting though, especially <laughs> for somebody like me who can never sleep. Yeah. I wish I could sleep four hours in a row. Oh. That'd be nice. That's crazy. Um, well, Brett, that was awesome. This show is so much fun to record. We got to do this more often, buddy. I love it. Uh, <sighs> Thanks for bringing that great content piece. Thank you, everybody, for listening and downloading the show. Go and check out our Instagram at the Content Clearinghouse. Uh, email us at contentclearinghouse at gmail.com, especially if you want to agree with me on anything that I've said tonight. <laughs> <laughs> Who else is melting their precious, beloved toys? <laughs> oh, man. If you've ever melted a Rancor toy, just go ahead and send us an email. And, uh, yeah, tune in next uh, whenever it is that we come back. Uh, next few weeks or maybe about a month from now. Thanks for listening. We love you guys. 